Hi, folks. Welcome back to Box Tablet. I'm Julie Subrin. I'm the executive producer of the podcast. Today, we've got something a little different for you. It's a one-hour Passover special we produce for public radio. And I don't want to say much about it because you're going to hear it for yourself in just a sec. But we hope you enjoy it. And then if you do, you'll share it with your friends, family, and, well, basically every single person you know. So now make yourself comfortable, settle in, and let's begin. What do folks talk about during the Jewish holiday of Passover? Well, we talk about God. Like, I can imagine, you know, that he meets the producer, and the producer says to him, how about three plagues? Why do you need ten? And God said, no, I'm God. I can do whatever I want, and you're fired. We tell stories about our ancestors. The thought that any of my ancestors could have had slaves, it just upsets me that they owned people. And we tell jokes. Lots and lots of jokes. They walk in and he says, Kedra, my son is bar mitzvah, and I want you to sit and think about the best bar mitzvah the world has ever seen. Go ahead, tell me what you got. Join me, Sarah Avery. And me, Jonathan Goldstein. To hear all this and more on We'll Be Here All Night, a Passover special from Tablet Magazine and PRX. That's coming up after the break, so stay with us. You're listening to We'll Be Here All Night, Stories for Passover, from Tablet Magazine and PRX. I'm Sarah Ivory, host of Tablet's podcast. With me is the writer Jonathan Goldstein. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Sarah. You may know Jonathan from his stories on This American Life or his radio show Wiretap. He's also the author of a short story collection called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Bible, which makes him particularly well-suited to co-host this hour. Over the next hour, we're going to bring you stories about the dark and funny places Passover can take us. The stories are drawn from the themes of this holiday, but they're universal. We'll be hearing about slavery, freedom, how to tell a good joke, and, well, lice. So it's fine if you don't know a thing about Passover, but it might be useful at this point if we briefly lay out some of the basics. Okay, so let's do it. Passover. This is a major Jewish holiday. It marks the coming of spring. Traditionally, it was a pilgrim holiday, meaning that in the ancient world, Jews would trek up to the temple in Jerusalem. More importantly, Passover celebrates the Israelites' freedom from slavery in Egypt. The thing about Passover is that you don't have to go to a temple or synagogue to celebrate, and you don't need a rabbi to lead you. Instead, you just gather around a table with family and friends or whoever, and you recite particular prayers and eat particular foods in a very particular way. You also tell stories about the Jews and sing songs in a particular sequence. This meal-slash-prayer-service-slash-sing-along combo is called a seder, and it goes in a specific order. That's actually what Seder means in Hebrew, order. There's even a handy guidebook, and it's called a Haggadah that lays out what exactly you're supposed to do and when. Okay, so Seder, Haggadah, let's just leave it at that for now. Wait, you, we're kind of leaving out all the drama here, the, the Sturm und Drang, as it were. <laughs> okay, all right. So let's talk about the headline story in this story of Passover. It's this. The story of Exodus. The tale of how Moses led the Jews out of Egypt. He got a lot of help from God. It's a great story. There is lots of suspense. There's action. If you saw the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, you will remember that there was also a lot of violence. There's hail. There's fire. There's locusts. There's even murder. And as I tell you this story, it makes me wonder why on earth would we want to share this story year in and year out with small children? Well, you know, I, I, I think that the plagues are kind of pretty creative. Edgar Carrot is an Israeli writer and filmmaker. He's the father of a nine-year-old son. He offered his take on the pros and cons of the Passover story, and especially those nasty plagues, from his home in Tel Aviv. So, Edgar, what is the story of Passover? Like, if, if you had to give a synopsis to your son, how would you explain it? So I would say that, you know, that the... Uh, we were slaves in Egypt, you know, building pyramids and stuff, and we wanted to quit it. We said we don't want to be slaves anymore. We want to go back to our home country. And then uh, they said no, and uh, so God started kind of giving them plagues and to make sure that they won't say yes, he hardened the, the heart of the pharaoh. 
So he kept saying no. And after he said no, 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 and all kind of bad stuff happened to them, we escaped anyway. And uh, God parted the water for us. And when the Egyptian army came after us, he, he made all of them drown. And then we went for many years in the desert and got the Ten Commandments and got to Israel. And um, would, would there be certain scenes that you would linger over? Like would the, um, would the parting of the Red Sea be the centerpiece? What do you feel is like the, uh, the car chase scene in the, in the, in the movie of the uh, Exodus? Well, you know, I, I, I think that the plagues are kind of pretty creative, you know, like every different plague kind of attacking them from a different angle. And it's a, I remember it always as a child when they talk about the plagues, I imagined the plagues as an Egyptian family, you know. I didn't imagine it as God or a Jew looking at an Egyptian guy. I said, oh, my God, you know, lice and things and skin disease and it's hailing on me. Oh, my God, you know, it's tough to be an ancient Egyptian. Thinking of the story as a writer, are there moments that you feel are like a, a kind of lapse in the narrative, like certain things that don't, don't add up? Like you, you mentioned how God hardened the Pharaoh's heart, which is an explanation, I guess, for why it would take so many plagues for him to get the idea that he's not going to win this one. Yeah, well, again, you know, if you look at it, it story-wise, in the end, like the plagues didn't change anything. So basically we could have just escaped. God could have parted the water, you know. Uh, then make all the Egyptian drowns. We didn't need the plague, you know. It's a, it's not a necessary for the plot. Again, I always felt about it, even as a child, that uh, Pharaoh was a tragic figure. When you hear the story, it's very hard to be against the Pharaoh, you know. He really... The Egyptians get the short end of the stick most of the time. Okay, we were slaves first, and we built the pyramids, and, you know, and they didn't let us uh, have a union, you know. They did all kinds of many bad things, but uh, when you read the story, it's not like sometimes you have a story when as the story evolves, you hate the bad guy more and more. But here, you know, from very early on, they just kind of, they just suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and then they drown. Yeah, I mean, to to try to put myself, if I may, in, in in God's shoes, he sort of like has these amazing plagues and he just wants to showcase them. Yeah, well, I, I mean, like, I can imagine, you know, that he meets the producer and the producer says to him, how about three plagues? Why do you need 10? You know, in the end, you know, they don't agree anyway. So why? You could you could say 10, you could say 20, you know. How about you pick the three best plagues, you know, and we just do the three of them. And God said, no, I'm God. I can do whatever I want, you know, and you're fired. It, it, yeah, it's, it's like you, you would think that the pharaoh would get the idea, like really get it, have it hammered home after three plagues. You know, Jonathan, if it was me, if it was me, you wouldn't even need one plague. You know, if you just say, I'm going to plague you, I say, Jonathan, whatever you want, you're going to get it, you know. If you would just threaten me with a plague, you know, because it's one hell of a threat, you know. People, people don't plague as much as they did in ancient times these days. Edgar Carrot is a writer and a regular contributor to Tablet Magazine. He spoke to us from his home in Tel Aviv. Edgar has actually written a story about an Egyptian family desperately trying to outsmart the plagues. It's called Plague of the Firstborn, and you can read it on Tablet's website. Just go to tabletmag.com slash passoverstories. There you'll also find more of my conversation with Edgar. You're listening to We'll Be Here All Night, Stories for Passover. It's from Tablet Magazine and PRX. I'm Sarah Ivry. With me is Jonathan Goldstein. You know, Jonathan, Edgar is right. People don't really plague as much as they used to. Believe me, I've tried it. There is one plague, though, from that list of 10 that God inflicted on the Egyptians that is still going strong in elementary schools throughout this land. Brooklyn-based reporter Sally Herships recently visited a woman who fights this scourge on a daily basis. 
Here's Sally. If you grew up in a family of just one or two or even three or four kids, when you go to Abigail Rosenfeld's house, you may feel like your family isn't big enough. She's got a lot of kids, more than 10. It snowed a lot this winter, and outside her house is the biggest igloo you've ever seen, and tiny bikes are scattered around. Inside, the door is open so you can walk in. You'll find the kitchen, Abigail's center of operations. It's got cream-colored walls. It's uncluttered, a table, and a few metal chairs with vinyl seats. No place for lice to hide. The phone is ringing. You might find a couple of her grown sons there playing with her three-year-old daughter. Okay, ready? I love you! Then the clients, moms with their kids, the ones with itchy heads, start coming in. One has three daughters, adorable, by the way, tiny and strawberry blonde, and Abigail gets to work pretty quickly. Now one louse, one bug, very mild case. That's Um, Abigail's granddaughter crying in the background, by the way. A very sensitive young lady. It's the monkey right at school we came. She's going to take it all out. They're not going to be itchy no more, okay? This kitchen is where you end up if you live in a certain part of Brooklyn, go to school, and come home with an itchy head. There's a good chance the school nurse gave your mom or dad a piece of paper and Abigail Rosenfeld's number is on it. She checks and cleans kids' heads. People call her the lice lady. The calls come in unpredictably, but when they do, it's almost always at the last minute and some parents are panicked. They want to come in immediately, as in now. And they do. Abigail says one of her first jobs is to calm them down. Stay calm. If it's not fatal, it's no big deal, right? (laughs) And one thing I always tell them is you got to be thankful that you have a kid and that the kid has hair on her head to have lice. Because a lot of people don't have kids and don't have light hair. So lice is not such a major thing if you think about that. Abigail works without glasses. And while she doesn't want to share her exact age, she says it's almost 50. Like many of the women who do her job, she's an Orthodox Jew, and so she dresses modestly, usually in a long skirt and a shirt with three-quarter length sleeves. Her hair is in a kerchief, and today she's all in black. You know, everyone seems to say black makes you look thinner. (laughs) But we can wear any color we want besides red. Abigail and her kids are so relaxed and friendly, you kind of want to get lice just so you can stick around. Okay, maybe that's a stretch. But it looks like she's just cutting kids' hair, not removing colonies of microscopic blood-sucking insects from their heads. Yeah, I mean, if you know what you're doing, it doesn't have to be a big deal. Simple cases like these little girls take about 15 minutes each. Each kid climbs up onto a tall stool, and Abigail applies handfuls of Pantene conditioner to her head. She says it immobilizes the lice. Then she takes one of those special combs, the kind with the teeth that are so close together it looks like a paintbrush, and starts going through the girls' heads looking for bugs and eggs. And she finds some. You see all the babies? But they were not... Look closely. It's not all babies. This is a baby that... Look at the monkey. Pitsy little buggy. Next, Abigail sprinkles baking soda on their heads. She says it acts as an abrasive to help comb out the smaller eggs. Now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty, all the little ones, whatever's left. She charges anywhere from $10 to 200 per person, depending on how serious a case is. There are places in the city that could charge $1,000 to clean out one head. $1,000? And up. And up, yes, in Manhattan. What can they possibly do? They sit and pick and comb and comb and comb for hours on end, and they charge. And they can get away with it, because when it comes to lice, some people just bug out. We had a lady in Park Slope. Now she was told that her and her kids had lice. She had long, beautiful blonde hair, shaved her head and her kids' heads, came back to school an hour and a half later. She said, all gone. I took care of it. Can't deal with lice. That was it. Yeah. People today still shave their heads because of lice. People, people panic. Like another one of her clients, a single woman with no kids. She moved out of her apartment. She moved into a hotel room. She totally freaked out. Was that necessary? Of course not. Abigail and her colleagues have a more relaxed attitude towards lice. Abigail, her best friend Shayna, and Shayna's daughter Sephora, who is also Abigail's daughter-in-law, all work as lice ladies. Abigail has been hunting lice since she was 13. The kids in her family got lice, and her mom couldn't see the bugs. They were just too tiny for her eyes. So Abigail took on the job. I remember how she cried. She couldn't see the bugs. She couldn't see the, light, uh, the eggs. 
and the school said that the kids can't go back to school. There's a single egg in the head. And that fell into my lap. I sat there and picked. Ah, there's my daughter-in-law. Abigail says she never planned to become a lice lady. In the beginning, she was just helping family and friends. Then a public school teacher recommended her, and the word got out. But she says aside from being a doula or midwife, other jobs she thinks she'd love, she's pretty happy with this one. She likes to help people, and she also likes the flexibility. I can work at home. That's the best part. That's a big blessing. Don't have to go to college for it. And like she mentions, the lice she's dealing with are not the same as biblical lice, the ones that plagued the Egyptians. They were super duper lice, not like they killed today's lice. Those were said to be as big as hen's eggs. And she says they were all over the Egyptians' bodies. After all, it was a plague. Do people mention that when they come in? Oh, everyone brings it up. What are they saying? I got the plague. (laughs) That's pretty obvious which plague, right? Being a religious Jew does come in handy for this job, since there's already lots of bug checking going on. Insects aren't kosher, and so whoever's making food has to give every fruit and vegetable that comes in the kitchen a careful inspection. This is Zephora, Abigail's daughter-in-law. So it's not, that's why we do. We have to wash all the vegetables. We have to check, you know, the lettuce we have to check. We have to check the strawberries. We can't eat strawberries. We can't eat the prunes. When I, eat, when I have to check the prunes, I check everything. The raisins I soak and... We check everything before we eat them. But Abigail says anyone can do this work, as long as they have good eyesight. Her three-year-old daughter is already learning the ropes. She's helping mom. Standing on a chair in the kitchen, she's putting conditioner on the heads of kids much bigger than her. First first listen to mommy. First you got to put the soap in her hair, okay? And then the phone starts ringing again. Okay. Tell her to come sit down. Sally Herships is a reporter based in Brooklyn. Coming up next... At the bottom of page 49, and it says that he has two slaves. One is a 20-year-old female, and the other is a 13-year-old female. Celebrating Passover after discovering that your great-great-grandparents owned slaves in Mississippi. You're listening to We'll Be Here All Night... Stories for Passover. Stay with us. Welcome back to We'll Be Here All Night, an hour of funny and serious Passover stories from Tablet Magazine and PRX. I'm Sarah Ivory, host of Tablet's podcast, Vox Tablet, and with me is writer and radio host Jonathan Goldstein. Sarah, there's an aspect of the Passover tradition that we haven't really talked about yet, and that's the imperative to ask questions. In fact, specific questions are actually written into the Haggadah, that book that lays out all the steps of the Passover Seder. The questions are about how and why we retell the Exodus story. They get us thinking about slavery and freedom and memory. For Debbie Nathan, those questions have taken on a certain urgency in the past few years. I'm what you could call the prodigal daughter. Years ago, I moved far away from my large extended family in Texas. Even so, I love coming back and sitting around with my cousins and schmoozing, soaking up all the old rumors and family lore. Anybody need anything? Water, tea? I have a bunch of lady cousins now in their 80s and 90s. Of all the women in the family, they've always had the nicest makeup and the best does she or doesn't she hair color and the juiciest family stories. She had a, a sister-in-law, Annette Veet, and she used to always say, well, Annette was the pretty blonde, but I was the prettiest brunette. <laughs> On a day like this one, in one of the cousins' ranch-style living rooms, with the champagne dry and the guacamole spicy, They'll happily dip Doritos and tell the same stories they've been sharing for decades. Like this one, told by cousin Mimi, age 84, about great-aunt Bertha, who had a very low IQ. Well, it was said that during the uh, Civil War, her mother was pregnant with her, and the um, Yankees were coming, and so she jumped out of her window while she was pregnant, and I don't know if she... 
if she fell or what. But anyhow, uh, Aunt Bertha was born retarded. She was born, um, what do you call it now? Mentally. Mentally challenged. My family immigrated from Europe, but they didn't settle up north in some heavily Jewish place like the Lower East Side. They came early, before the Civil War, and went to rural Mississippi, which by 1864, when poor Aunt Bertha was in my great-great-grandmother's womb, was overrun by Union soldiers, Yankees. Generations later, there was another story moldering in the family closet, but no one was talking about it until a few years ago when an inquisitive historian pretty much dumped it on our coffee table. But let me back up a bit. Years ago, my family found out about a novel titled Sunrise in the West. It was published in 1931 and is all about my ancestors. It was written by my great cousin David and based on fact but mixed with fiction. When Sunrise in the West debuted, it got a good review in the New York Times, though I'm not sure why because cousin David was no Faulkner. His prose was clunky, sometimes to painfulness. Like this wedding night scene, which has my great-great-grandmother's new husband being, as David writes, ineffably tender, divinely hungry for her, their lives interlaced now and forever. Still, the book included one thing that came off very strong. It said that my Jewish great-great-grandparents owned slaves before the Civil War. By the time we read Sunrise, everyone in my family who could have known about these slaves directly was dead. On the few occasions when the subject came up, it got brushed aside as a big lie. Slaves? My dad huffed. Bubby Massa. An old wives' tale. Jews, he assured us, had been peddlers and storekeepers in the South, not the owners of Terra. There's another reason the slave claim struck me as preposterous. When I was growing up in the 1950s and 60s, my parents, and especially my mother, were civil rights activists. She used to go into grocery stores and rip the white and colored signs off segregated water fountains. She trained my sisters and me to use the colored bathroom and to take seats at the back of the bus. To me, Jews and blacks in America had always been fellow travelers on that arc that bends towards justice. So it was with righteous indignation that I responded when a family acquaintance forwarded me this fact sheet about our ancestors in the South, compiled by a woman I didn't know. The fact sheet included that tired, phony claim that my ancestors owned slaves. As soon as I read it, I fired off a sharply worded email to the woman. But she was, and is, unflappable. When you tell people that their ancestors fought for the Confederacy, owned slaves, they're shocked disbelief. Oh, no, not my family. We would never do that. Of course they did. Hollis Weiner was raised on the East Coast, but she lives in Fort Worth now, and she's a historian who specializes in the Jews of Texas. She does genealogy work for her local reform temple, which my relatives helped found over a century ago. My cousins are still members today. That's how I got that sheet that made me so upset. When I told Weiner I didn't believe it, she answered that the information was solid based on a special federal government census of slaveholders taken in the South before the Civil War. Recently, we looked at it again. At the bottom of page 49, and it says that he has two slaves. One is a 20-year-old female, and the other is a 13-year-old female. And there it is, right on the page, the slave owner's name, my great-great-grandfather. It didn't take much work to get my own copy of the slave census. All you need is an inexpensive internet subscription to Ancestry.com. Then you download it in two minutes. And I found other documents, including the state taxes my great-great-grandfather paid in 1859. One was for those two slaves, taxed at 40 cents apiece. in Yankee land now, New York, not Texas. You can probably tell by the difference between my cousin's accents and mine. 
But I was so haunted by what Hollis had discovered, I wanted to gather my family and break the news. Last fall, I flew out to Texas for a little impromptu reunion. But I just want to finish my story, but then... And I dropped the news on them. You know, I mean, I never, ever thought about this. I'm kind of shocked by it. Things got noisier and quieter all at once. I never thought about us even having slaves in our family. I mean, I thought that was way, way... Well, it was way, 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 but the thought that any of my ancestors could have had slaves, it just it upsets me. It really does. I don't know why, because it's something I have nothing to do with, but just to think that they owned people. I think that was the time, and I think, like, we've had black maids that came in the back door, and we paid them like $3 a week, and they did all of our housekeeping and cooking and whatever. And and that was just the way it was. Well, back then it was the way it was was to, own, to have a slave. And and as long as, as, long as I don't know that, that they abused them or physically or sexually or mentally, then I could care less. That was the time. You mean that? Did he abuse them or any? I mean, did he have his way with those young girls? Do we have black in our family? We may have relatives somewhere. We don't know them. I'd wondered about that, too, and had actually spent hours poring over old censuses for black people with our last name. I didn't find any. Maybe we didn't treat them as slaves. We helped them. Maybe this is how we know them. Right. So so you tell me that that you found research that they abused Mm -hmm. them. I will be upset, but if you can't, you know, then how would you find that? Well, yeah. How would you find that? I decided to ask an expert. My name is Dr. Stuart Rockoff. I am the executive director of the Mississippi Humanities Council, and I am a historian of Jews in the South. So, Stuart, the reason why I wanted to talk to you is because I recently found out that my southern Jewish family, that they had slaves. And this was a shock to the family in a way. And we had a lot of questions. Sure. One of those questions is, why did Jews own slaves? Well, I would turn the question around. Uh, why, why wouldn't they? I mean, I think the, the hard part for us today in the 21st century to understand is that the idea that, that sort of Judaism would be uh, sort of anathema to slavery is really a modern concept. I mean, the important point, and one that's hard for us as Jews today to accept, is that Jews in the South um, in the 1850s were not that different from other white people in the South in terms of how they viewed, uh, you know, African Americans and slavery. Um, They didn't act that differently than other whites. Well, you know, that brings up a question that several of my cousins had. Um, They said... You know, I think I'd I think I would feel worse if I knew that the slaves that we had were mistreated. And I hmm. wanted to ask you whether there's any way to know whether Jews treated slaves differently from other people who had slaves. I mean, historians who've looked at this um, have, again, not found a significant difference between um, Jews and non-Jews on this question. And how you measure it is so difficult. So folks have looked at wills and seen what did Jews do to their slaves when they died? Did they free them? Did they pass them on? And the answer is some did. Some did free them, and some willed them to other family members. And so, you know, again, there's not a specifically Jewish difference in how they treated. Now, the one difference is, uh, you know, I should say, is that Jews tended to uh, tended to live in cities, and they tended to own fewer numbers of slaves and use them as sort of house servants. So the idea of a large plantation uh, owned by Jews was relatively un- uh, uncommon. I'm not the only one with questions about the relationship between Jews and slavery. In fact, it's something of a hot-button topic on the internet where I came across all kinds of virulent claims that have been floating around for years. The Nation of Islam and other groups have repeatedly accused Jews of dominating the slave trade in America and having more slaves than other people. Rockoff says it's a bunch of hokum. Well, uh, certainly the notion that Jews controlled the slave trade or, or, you know, played a leading role in slavery in America is simply not true. if no Jew ever set foot, you know, on the shores of America, slavery would have unfolded in pretty much the exact same way that it did. You know, 
One thing that I've been wondering about, um, if you join Ancestry.com, you can find the most amazing documents, including the um, U.S. Census for the sla- for slave owners. Mm-hmm. And so anybody can just go back and find out whether their family owned slaves. And I'm just wondering, since you've been doing history in the South for so long, has anyone else besides me, any other Jews besides me, communicated with you about this quest and about finding this kind of information about their families? It's interesting. You know, I haven't. Um, and you're right. It is very, very easy to find out whether your ancestors owned slaves. But I think most people would rather not know. This Passover is going to be the first one my family celebrated since we found out that the old rumor about our slave owning is true. I've been wondering what kinds of things will be discussed after my kin recite from the Haggadah and thank God who, as the book says, brought us out from the land of Egypt and redeemed us from the house of bondage. Will someone steer the table toward that terrible truth that in a later time, some of us Jews owned and ran that house? Or will the Haggadah be recited without remark, as it has been in my family for generations? Okay, I'll tell y'all this. Now, this is Uh-oh. a family secret. Skeletons coming out. Family secret. Oh, goodness. <laughs> this is a family secret. But when Mother went to Uncle Dave and Aunt Thelma's wedding. I don't know what will happen at the Seder. But I do know what my genealogy research has revealed. Family skeletons are bony, and for Jews from the South, they're the bones of white America. They're lovely relics of the hope we had as immigrants, of how well we did, how very accepted we were. And they're the grotesque relics of our happy membership in a community of enslavers. All this happened a long time ago, and for most Jews, the bones have sunk quietly to the bottom of history's closet. But for me, they're still rattling loudly, still demanding that somehow we try to set things right. Let my people go! Debbie Nathan is a writer who divides her time between the Texas-Mexico border and New York City. Now when Israel was in Egypt land, let my people go. So hard they could not stand. Let my people go. So the Lord said, Go down. Go down. Moses. Moses. Way, way down. Down in Egypt land. Tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Let my people go. You've been listening to. We'll be here all night, stories for Passover, from Tablet Magazine and PRX. I'm Sarah Ivry. And I'm Jonathan Goldstein. Up next, another take on Passover and slavery. It's impossible to hear the words, now we are slaves, as a person of color, person of African descent, and not have an emotional reaction to that. That's Michael Twitty, coming up. So don't go away. You're listening to We'll Be Here All Night, stories for Passover, from Tablet Magazine and PRX. I'm Jonathan Goldstein. Okay, so we've talked about plagues and about slavery. What else is there, right? Well, for a lot of people, food is really what makes this holiday special. Cooking it, eating it, talking about it. I'm going to make a brisket with berberry, which is the Ethiopian hot spice that goes in everything. I'll coat it with that, and I'll barbecue it. You know, barbecuing is very Southern, and berberry is very Ethiopian, and brisket's very Jewish. So I guess I'll mix all of them up together. Michael Twitty is a food historian and Jewish educator. He was raised Christian in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., but from early on, he was curious about the traditions of his Jewish neighbors. I think about the time I was seven years old, I saw, you know, the movie version of The Chosen on TV. 
And um, it was a particular scene that kind of got to me. It was uh, Rod Steiger as a Hasidic Rebbe um, going into a state of tvekut in Hebrew, which means to glue oneself to the presence of the Lord. And um, he was dancing and he was in spiritual ecstasy. And that really, I, I don't know why, but something clicked and the exact words popped into my head. That's me. That's me. When he was 25, Michael converted to Judaism. Nowadays, he tours the country giving talks about the intersection between African-American and Jewish food and history. For years, Michael's been playing with the foods we eat at Passover, particularly with the items we put on the Seder plate, that plate that sits at the center of the table and holds different symbolic foods. There's horseradish or some other bitter herb that stands for the bitterness of slavery. You might find parsley or lettuce to signify rebirth and spring. And of course, there's matzah, which is also known as the bread of affliction. That's an unleavened cracker that reminds us that the Israelites had so little time to get ready before they had to flee Egypt that they had to grab the dough before it could rise properly and get out. Michael says the holiday of Passover, and especially those foods, are rich with meaning for someone like him. I love Passover. Passover is my favorite holiday. It's about renewal. The grass is coming back. You know, the lambs are here. Now it's time to recommit to something. And just kind of like clearing out your kitchen and sort of like make, setting a new table, you know, even of itself is, is a beautiful piece of Torah. I first started experimenting with the Seder plate um, after a couple of Freedom Seders where they tried to incorporate some elements of African-American culture, history into the idea of a Seder plate as a symbolic representation. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Well, if I never, never see you anymore. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. I'll meet you on the other show. So, you know, there was um, the collard green is maror with a bitter herb. Um, some people know it as horseradish. Collard greens are a bitter green. And they immediately bring to mind um, the gardens of enslaved people. You know, I thought about the matzah. There was no matzah on the plantations of the American South, but there was hoe cake, you know, white cornmeal, coarsely ground, mixed with water, you know, barely just cooked into a cake, a flat cake that made you feel full, not tasty at all, not delicious, but it was the hardtack of American slavery, the much way matzah is considered the hardtack of, you know, the peasant world, you know, millennia ago. So then comes, okay, what do you do for salt water? Well, salt water, that's a beautiful symbol because it transcends both cultures. It can be tears, but for me, it was the waters of the Middle Passage. Um, The idea that the ocean brought us, the ocean absorbed bodies that were tossed into its waters as slave ships made their crossing. And then the chicken bone, that's very interesting. The zroa is a lamb bone on the traditional Seder plate. Um, symbolizing the uh, sacrifices in the Holy Temple. And for me, the chicken bone was uh, sort of satirical, sort of funny, but also very true. Um, as African Americans made their migration north, they often went on what they called the Chicken Bone Express, which was a cute little nickname for the trains that would take you to Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, or the West Coast. And you couldn't eat with white people. You couldn't eat their food. Nobody would sell you anything. And you probably couldn't afford it, so you traveled with a box of chicken and other food that, you know, your family packed for you. This was your last home-cooked southern meal before you went to the quote-unquote promised land for a better life, a better job, and a life that wasn't uh, determined by Jim Crow. For me, as a Jew of color, as an African-American Jew, to not remember, to sort of forget or sort of separate those two struggles when I absolutely do come from enslaved people, uh, their blood runs through my veins, is, um, it's not an option. 
And I don't want people to forget that. I don't want to be seen as just another Jew. I want to be seen as a Jewish person who has a rich and multi-layered legacy that I have to live up to. Michael Twitty is a food historian and Jewish educator. You'll find more of his musings on his blog. It's called Afro Culinaria. And if you want to try his Barberry brisket, we've got the recipe for you on our website. Go to tabletmag.com slash Passover stories. Jonathan, a question for you. Oh, yes. What do you need to happen at a Seder for it to feel like a real Seder? Like a Seder in our home? I yeah. think a lot of yelling. A lot of A lot yelling. of crosstalk. <laughs> um, uh, matzah. I, I'm a big fan of the afikomen. And the afikomen, of course, is a piece of matzah that's hidden earlier in the meal, somewhere in the house to be found. And once you eat it, you're not supposed to eat any food anymore during the Seder. Right. And, and, and I love the transformation, the way that a regular piece of matzah suddenly becomes the afikomen, just by virtue of everyone saying it's the afikomen. And do, um, do you call it a day after the afikomen? Yeah, and I think because, you know, traditionally the Seder could go on for hours and hours. In our household, though, it was like about a, I would say about a 15 to 20 minute deal. Um, I remember there was one year where Jeopardy, we started, the, the TV was still on in the other room and Jeopardy was playing. And I remember by the time that final Jeopardy was uh, happening, we were like done. Wow. We were completely finished. So the Afikomen is hidden, but not very hard. Like either because they thought that me and my sister weren't bright enough, we didn't have like the organizational skill and the stick to itness to find the afikomen, so they'd hide it pretty well, like in plain sight. Like, oh, there it is, like leaning against the jug of wine, you know, because they just wanted to get it over with and get to bed. That's the opposite of mine. Mine growing up was always very long, and I think it put in my head the idea that it's it's got to be long. In fact, I, I feel so strongly about it that one year I held a Seder of my own in Brooklyn. And I remember after the meal, one of my friends who is somewhat observant was like, I got to go. I've worked tomorrow. And I just felt like, dude, this comes around one time a year. You can't just go the distance, sing all the songs, see it through to, I'm not saying till four in the morning, but till midnight. They went through the desert for like 40 exactly. years. Exactly. At least we could do. Exactly. You can't go through four hours. And yet how many uh, actual rituals have written into it the idea that it's so long that we have to try to keep the kids from falling asleep? That's what's amazing about it. Right. Yeah. So they have like the, the afikomen to look forward to, the questions and stuff like that, you know. Right. And all those songs at the end about, you know, like the calf, chargarya. You might not remember this one if you. The calf ate the dog. The yeah, dog exactly. Ate the cheese. Exactly. There's a it's kind just of. It's this murder and mayhem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the Darwinian food chain. That's right. It is. As a song. Right. Right. Yeah. As a musical. <laughs> then came the Holy One, blessed be He, and slew the angel of death that killed the shochet that slaughtered the ox that drank the water that quenched the fire that burned the stick that beat the dog that bit the cat that ate the goat. My father bought for two Zuzim. Chad Gaia. Chad Gaia. Okay, well, we have one last story here from Jonathan Gruber. He grew up in Brooklyn, but now he lives far from there. And for him, what really makes a Seder a Seder is... Uh, the telling of jokes, and he wants to pass this tradition on to his kids, or actually one joke in particular. Like a lot of people, Passover was my favorite holiday growing up. These days, I'm an adult, my wife isn't Jewish, and I live in Amsterdam in Holland. Amsterdam has a pretty small Jewish community. This means I have to make a special trip to the few bodega-sized kosher stores to get matzah meal and horseradish and all the other stuff I need to get a Seder going. But I do it. I make the effort. I do it because I want to teach my kids a little something about Jewish culture in their very non-Jewish Dutch environment. But if I'm 100% honest, the main reason I do it is this. I am trying to recreate my own childhood memories of happy Passovers at my aunts and uncles. Our family would rotate the seders between our apartment in Sheepshead Bay and my dad's brothers and sisters' houses in Long Island, the Bronx, and New Jersey. 
But they all grew up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, during the Depression. And at the time, Brownsville was one of Brooklyn's many Yiddish-speaking ghettos. The best part of the evening was between the halves of the Seder. The women would be bringing out bowls of hard-boiled eggs and salt water, and the men would be sipping at the red Manischewitz. And that is when the nostalgia would start. My dad, Louie, and his two brothers, Hi and Sai, and their sisters, Leah and Honey, you can't make these names up, would talk bittersweetly about their childhoods. Their parents were Polish immigrants working sweatshop jobs, and life was a struggle. Eventually, the brothers opened up a candy store called Hai Sai Lu, which people used to kid was Chinese. They talked about how the local mob, Murder Incorporated, used to hang out at the store. And then, as inevitably as parsley gets dipped in salt water and the Afiko men will be hid, they would start to tell the jokes. These were the jokes they learned as kids. Really long, really funny, really old jokes. Jokes populated by old New York Jewish characters with broad Yiddish accents. They were befuddled farriers and misguided rabbis and Damon Runyon-esque men and women in zoot suits at nightclubs listening to big bands. The names of the people in the jokes and all kinds of details would change from year to year, and this would inevitably lead to arguments. But the punchlines, they stayed the same. Even as a kid, I understood that these jokes were filled with a loving nostalgia and described a world that was fading. Today, as all of New York's delis and egg cream places disappear and are replaced by frozen yogurt shops, their world is now all but erased. And so, for your listening pleasure, I am going to resurrect those days and tell you my dad's best joke. This is the one I remember most clearly, and in my opinion, it was his funniest. It is called The Schwartzman Bar Mitzvah. Schwartzman's son is Bar Mitzvah, so he and his wife go to see a caterer. They walk in and he says, Caterer, my son is Bar Mitzvah, and I want you to sit and think about the best Bar Mitzvah the world has ever seen. Go ahead, think. Money's no object. Come on, tell me what you got. I want to hear it. Come on, caterer. Let's go. Bar Mitzvah. So the caterer says, Well, Mr. Schwartzman, what I think we should do is uh, hire out the Waldorf Astoria in Manhattan for two days. And uh, we'll invite 50 of your best family and your friends, and they'll actually stay at the hotel for two nights. And then we'll have the bar mitzvah in the grand ballroom, and the chief rabbi of New York City will come, and he will bar mitzvah your son himself. We'll invite Jimmy Dorsey and his orchestra. I think it'll just be fabulous. He'll be extremely pleased with this. Excellent. Great. That's a great bar mitzvah. Let's do it. And then suddenly, Schwartzman's wife says, Schwartzman? I don't know how to say this, but, uh, you know, don't you remember going to the Kimmelman Bar Mitzvah three weeks ago? It was at the Waldorf Astoria. Just saying. Come on, Kedera, come on. I want to have something unique. I want a great Bar Mitzvah. Come on, use your noodle. Come on, think. Come on, go ahead, go. Bar Mitzvah, think. Well, uh, Mr. Schwartzman, um, here's what we should do. We should rent out the Queen Mary. We'll invite 100 of your best friends and your family. We'll sail for four weeks on the Atlantic Ocean. We'll invite Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey and their orchestra. We will sail all the way to Israel, where your son will be bar mitzvah by the chief rabbi of Israel. What do you think? That's a great bar mitzvah. Let's do it. Come on, let's go. Schwartzman, Sir Schwartzman's wife, I don't know how to say this, but don't you remember just last year we went to that bar mitzvah and the Queen Mary all the way to Israel. I'm just saying, I'm not making problems, I'm just saying. Come on, caterer, come on. I want unique. I want the greatest bar mitzvah the world has ever seen. Money is no object. Think, go, talk. Well, all right, uh, I think what we should do is this. We'll rent out the Queen Elizabeth. We'll take 500 of your friends and your family. We'll have Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey and their orchestras and Frank Sinatra. We will sail six months to Cape Town, the very tip of South Africa, where we will then board 
a train of 60 elephants, and then you and 500 of your best friends and family will travel by elephant through the dark continent of Africa all the way up to Jerusalem, where your son will be bar mitzvahed by the chief rabbi of Israel at the Wailing Wall. Now you're talking bar mitzvah. Let's do it! So, they all board the Queen Elizabeth. Jimmy and Tommy Dorsey and their orchestras and Frank Sinatra perform for them. They sail the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean for six months until finally the entire group lands at Cape Town, where they then board an elephant train of 60 elephants and they start making their way through the dark continent of Africa. And then suddenly, in the middle of the jungle, the entire wagon train comes to a dead stop. It sits there for two days. And then Schwartzman, who's becoming extremely impatient, finally starts calling up to the head of the wagon train, What's the holdup up there? And it goes from elephant to elephant. What's the holdup up there? And then the answer slowly starts making its way back. There's two more bar mitzvahs ahead of us! Jonathan Gruber is a radio producer based in Amsterdam. He's also the host of a fabulous show called The State We're In. Go check it out. And that's it. You've been listening to We'll Be Here All Night, stories for Passover from Tablet Magazine and PRX. If you missed any part of it, not to worry, you can find all of these stories and more at tabletmag.com slash Passover stories. And if you have questions or comments, please send them to us at podcast at tabletmag.com. Today's special was produced by Julie Subrin. It was mixed by Pike Malinowski. A big, huge thanks to our friend here, Jonathan Goldstein. Jonathan, thank you so much. If you don't know Jonathan Goldstein's podcast, Wiretap, go find it and listen. It's great. We're also so thankful to Edgar Carrot, Sally Herships, Debbie Nathan, Michael Twitty, Jonathan Gruber, Nishi Harmon, Emily Botin, and everyone over at Tablet Magazine and PRX. I'm Sarah Ivory. Thank you all so much for listening. We wish you a happy Passover. Passover.